Good morning. How are you doing today? Uh, very grateful to be back with you guys again. Uh, last time I was here a few weeks ago, we looked at uh, Ruth chapter 1. So today, if you want to go ahead and get out your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Ruth chapter 2, and we'll continue in that series. I'll be back again uh, twice in October, and we'll look at more of that. Um, the title of this morning's message is The Sweetness of God in the Midst of the Bitterness of Life. And that really is kind of the theme of the book of Ruth. And so I wasn't really planning on sharing this story, but as I was coming this morning and I was thinking about, you know, how has God shown up in my life in moments where maybe there were seeds of bitterness that were showing up? Uh, one of the times that I thought of was when I was in college, I was part of an organization called Camps Outreach. I had totally found Camps Outreach by just some really crazy circumstances. If you're familiar with a group like Campus Crusade, or they now call themselves Crew, uh, Camps Outreach is very much like Crew. Uh, it was started in Birmingham, Alabama, and it kind of served smaller campuses where Crew wasn't yet. So I grew up in Georgia. Crew would have been at the University of Georgia. They weren't at all the other universities that were in the state of Georgia, and so Camps Outreach was kind of filling this little niche and gap, and so I wound up at a school called West Georgia, and I wound up being a part of this amazing um, campus ministry that taught me about discipleship, shared the gospel with me, uh, really sort of changed the trajectory, I think, of my life. And at one point, one of the things that would happen is they would come to different students at one point, and they would challenge you to go on these cross-cultural missions. And so you, you get to spend a summer you'd spend about two and a half months on this mission trip, and they had gone to some amazing places. They had gone to Thailand. They had gone to Brazil. They had gone all over the country. And so my friends and I were so excited when we were challenged this, and you would go to this meeting, and they were going to reveal where they were going to send you. And as we were sitting in that meeting, you know, we, we had contemplated, well, last year they went here, so maybe we're going to Brazil, and last year they did this, and so maybe we're going to do that. And they said, this year, for the first time ever, we're going to go to Miami, Florida. <laughs> and it was like, huh? No, this is supposed to be like, I don't, I don't know if we misunderstood what y'all are inviting us to, but this is supposed to be like across the pond missions. Like we need to fly over a body of water or something. And so uh, my friends and I, we said yes, and we spent a summer in Miami, Florida, which... Uh, Wound up being an incredible summer. There I met a man named Ken Foster, who really, for the first time for me, I met someone who uh, reflected my personality and sort of I saw myself in, if that makes sense, of trying to live out the Christian life, and that became vital for me. Uh, and one of the reasons why I know that was vital for me is uh, my son is here this morning with us, uh, and his name is actually Ransom Foster Shiver because of the influence that this man had on me. And, you know, I think so oftentimes, I mean, if you think about your own life, how many times has God shown up in some amazing way in a moment that you felt disappointed, that you felt didn't live up to maybe the expectations that you had created for that moment or what you thought was going to happen in that moment? And it almost always seems that moment that we let our guards down is when God does some of his most incredible work, I think. So join me this morning as we look at Ruth chapter 2. I'm going to pray for us um, that this will be a time of encouragement for us. This will be a time 
for us to challenge ourselves of our willingness to trust God with what is going to happen in our life. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that your word is living and active. Father, one of the great promises we have in scripture is that the word of God will not return void. And so, Father, I pray today that all of my thoughts, all of my stories, all of my anecdotes will fall away and what would remain is your word and your truth and what you have for us this morning. Uh, Father, will you help us? Uh, Father, every one of us walk into this moment with different thoughts racing through our heads. Father, will you help us slow our hearts down for just a minute that we might hear of, of you and your great love for us through your son, Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. All right, so last time I was here, we talked a little bit about this idea of providence. And that is really God's benevolent work within human affairs. Okay, and one of the things we talked about is that providence is more than foreknowledge. We talked about that providence is really um, bears in mind God's provision for us in those moments, that God is a step or two ahead of us, that He is providing for us what we need. We mentioned stories in the Old Testament, like the story of Abraham and Isaac, Abraham going to sacrifice Isaac and God providing a lamb, that that was something God had done beforehand. Um, it wasn't just that God had foreseen that would need to happen, but that God had made a provision for that. And, you know, throughout the centuries, Christians have had a strong sense of God's work through the affairs of men. But not only men, also even nations on a global scale that God is at work, that he is directing and that the destination of the world, our destination is all in his hands. And if you want to, you could sort of sum scripture up like this. Number one, what is the Bible telling us? Number one, it's telling us that God is with us. Okay, so think about Genesis. What do we have when God creates? What do we have when we see Adam and Eve in this garden? We see this desire, this heart of God um, to be with his people, to have a people for himself. But then secondly, we also see that even when humanity rebels, God pursues them. God offers them to come underneath his wings, underneath his protection. And that's what we're going to see today in Ruth chapter 2. Now, Ruth chapter 2 is like 22 verses, 21, 22 verses. So what I'm going to do is kind of break it up as we go. So just have it open. We're going to revisit it uh, at different times this morning. But here's what we saw in Ruth chapter 1. We saw Ruth and Naomi. So Naomi has been widowed. Her husband has died. Um, she is in, for her culture, she is in one of the worst positions that you could be in. She has no way to provide for herself. And her daughter-in-law is there, but her daughter-in-law is a foreigner. Her daughter-in-law has no standing within the community at all. Her daughter-in-law is also a widow, but she is also not an Israelite. And so that puts her in an even worse position. And yet we see this sense of Ruth's loyalty. If you remember, probably the most famous passage from Ruth 1 is when Ruth says, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And so we see Ruth who has sacrificed everything on behalf of her mother-in-law uh, to care for her. And so we pick up then in verse 1 of chapter 2 of Ruth, and it says this, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Melchizedek, whose name was Boaz. 
And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes, in whose eyes I find favor. And Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So the first thing I want us to see is how does God show up in these bitter moments of life? Well, the first thing is we're going to see this divine appointment. Okay, so what you're going to see is that God is going to to divinely appoint this meeting that is going to happen between these two characters that we're going to see live out their life throughout the rest of the book. And so we often see God's hand in divine appointments. And a little bit of historical context I think is helpful here. Verse 1 and 2, we see that there's this pattern within their culture of how poor the poor in Israel would have, would have been able to make a living or care for themselves. Okay, And so under Levitical law, the question would be, how would you provide for the poor among you if you're in the, in the nation of Israel? Well, Leviticus 19, verses 9 through 10, we, we hear this. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the edges of your field or gather the gleanings from your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard for a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. So, so that is one of the laws that we find in Leviticus. Leviticus is a book that if you ever try to read through the Bible, it's probably about where you stopped, okay, because it kind of bogs down at times. But Leviticus is a book that expresses this, what we would call Levitical law, which would have been really where the people of Israel were finding out what it meant to be God's people and how they should reflect God's character. And so one of the things God says to the people in Israel who would have been sort of like modern day business owners, you have a field, you're a farmer, you can provide for yourself. He provides this provision for those who do not have that status in the community. And it's really twofold. One, you are not to glean all of the edges of your field. So you went through the field, glean would have meant to pick the harvest from there, okay? So you would have gone through your field, you would have sent your workers through your field, and two things, you would not have taken every single thing you can take out of that field. You would have left the edges. I grew up in South Georgia, I know what that looks like. Any field you have, there are little bits and pieces that kind of poke out. There's crops that grow off on the edges. And what he's saying is, don't pick those up. Um, Is anybody here from Georgia? You know, there's certain times of the year you can drive through Georgia and you'll just see cotton in in the ditches because the trucks have gone by and some cotton has blown off. Um, that those sort of sort of crumbs in some sense would have been left. But the second thing they couldn't do is they couldn't go back through their field a second time. So anything that had fallen on the ground, they were to leave for the foreigner and for the widow. And so this is Ruth's plan. Ruth says, let me go out to the fields and I will, will work and I will collect enough provision for myself and for Naomi. So Naomi is... Back at home, Ruth has volunteered basically to go out to the field on her behalf. But one of the things I want you to notice is in verse 1 and 2, we also get a comparison between these two main characters that are going to show up in this chapter for us. We get Boaz. Did you notice how Boaz is described in verse 1? We're small enough we can talk to each other. Did anybody pick up on that? 
He is a man of standing, right? So Boaz has resources. Boaz has um, clout, so to speak, within his community. But then in verse 2, notice what we're reminded about Ruth. She can't get away from this fact, can she? She's a Moabite. She's not an Israelite. They say it over and over. They remind us that she is a foreigner. She has no right to anything within this land. She doesn't actually even have the right to go behind the workers in the fields and glean what has been left on the ground. And we're going to see that play out in this chapter because she is actually risking the potential of harm by doing this. Okay, so there's been a provision made in Israel. Israelites that are in need can use this provision, but a foreigner is going to be even less able to use this, okay? And that's where she finds herself. But you know what we have is we have the workings of a great love story, right? So, um, you know, maybe you're like me and you've worked your way through enough streaming services that you're down to some of the bare bones, right? And you're waiting for something new to come out. Um, so I watched a movie with my life, I don't know, was it yesterday maybe, um, called, was it Finding You, Finding Love, Finding Something? And basically, the girl plays out the same way, right? You have the girl who is a struggling violin player who didn't make it into school. She didn't make, you know, the, the tryout. She fails the tryout. So she goes off on this trip overseas, and lo and behold, who does she run into? She runs into a movie star. Right? And so you have the girl who feels like her life is going nowhere, and you have the other person who, you know, has everything, right? And so this, this love story plays out. Now, if you've seen it, then you know what's going to happen. And the funny thing is, if you haven't seen it, you probably know what's going to happen. But for some reason, if you watch these kind of movies for like 20 minutes, now, if this was... Um, Hallmark, you know what happened, they'd want to start a bakery, right? I feel like every Hall movie is about a bakery now. But you know that somehow these two people who are coming from very different places are going to find each other, right? And they're going to find common ground. And so I thought of some of the greatest love stories of all time. Um, This is not at all meant to be a joke. But if you've read The Great Gatsby, it's probably one of the most famous ones. Um, Breakfast at Tiffany's has the same thing play out. Uh, One of my favorites, Pretty Woman, has the same idea play out. And then any Disney princess movie that has ever been made has this idea play out. And yet, is it not amazing that you and I sign up for it every time? Okay, so I just told you the brief plot of the movie I recently watched. Have you ever noticed that when you try to tell someone about these movies, it sounds absolutely ridiculous when you're trying to tell them, but yet you sat and watched the whole movie to find out how it's going to play out, right? So what is it about our hearts that love this story? I will argue with you that this is the thumbprint of God on our hearts, that you and I know who we are in the story. We know that we're not the movie star, We're not out looking. So if you're a young person and you're looking for love, you're not looking for someone who is like all of life is is crushing them. And you're like, oh, I found my forever person, right? 
Who are you looking for? You're looking for someone who has it all together. Aren't you? Isn't that how your heart's wired? You're not looking for the person who failed to get into, you know, Juilliard because they were struggling to play the violin and somehow learning to play it like a fiddle helps them get into school, right? You're not that person. You're not looking for them. You're looking for someone who has it all together. So that's the great love story. So picking up verse three, so it says, she went out, entered into a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turns out, which is a wonderful phrase here in this story, as it turns out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of who? The word that's really hard to say, Melchizedek, right? And so what does that mean? He's part of the family. It's going to be a safe place for her. Now, she doesn't know that at this point, and I think that's important to keep in mind. Ruth doesn't know this. The storyteller, the narrator, is giving us more information, right? You've watched the movie before where, as an audience member, we know more than what the actual character who's going through the movie knows yet, and we're like, somebody tell them. You know, we're just waiting for them to find out what we know. Okay, that's happening here to Ruth. She does not know this, and it's important for us to keep that in mind, but we know it. And this phrase, as it turns out, she just happens. Out of all the fields that Ruth could pick, she happens to pick Boaz's field, right? Uh, We see God's hand uh, at work. God is orchestrating this great meeting. Uh, Verse 4, just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Uh, We immediately see this man of great character. This would not have been a typical greeting. This isn't just a, hey, how are you type of greeting here. Um, The narrator is telling us that Boaz is a person who sees the people around him. He notices them. He cares about them. Notice he has come from Bethlehem to come out to the field to check and see how things are going. And we're going to over and over again see Boaz's care for the people around him. But here we see Boaz as this man of character. And then notice verse 5, 6, and 7 are then going to compare his character to Ruth's character. So verse 5 picking up says this, Boaz asked the overseer of the harvest, who does this young woman belong to? Now notice that. So Here's what we're going to hear. This isn't just men who are working out in the field, and there's one woman that's there, and that's Ruth, okay? In a little bit, we're going to find out there's more women that are there. But for Boaz to be able to recognize who is the one person who is not supposed to be in his field, what does that tell you? He's there a lot, right? He knows. He knows his people. He knows who he's caring for. He knows who's working for him. He knows who's supposed to be there. And so he immediately spots the one person who's not there. So in verse 6, the overseer replied, she is, again, the Moabite, uh, brought back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained there from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So who is Ruth? What do we see about Ruth? So we've seen Boaz's character, and now we see this character of Ruth, who is hard at work. They say, 
she's worked all day. Probably what they're saying is she's worked harder than most of our workers. She just took a short break. You know, and if somebody says she took a short break, it means that there are other people who take long breaks, right? Um, and, and you've been in plenty of work environments where you know how that feels to you if you're trying to be faithful and you're trying to be diligent and you keep seeing other people that are taking advantage of those moments, okay? Ruth is not one of those people, right? Ruth is not um, just working for a little or simply asking for a handout. But what we see is that the Lord has brought them together. And, and just a quick observation for any young adults who are in the room or just young people in general. Um, what I want you to notice is that Boaz and Ruth are being faithful to what God has put in front of them. Neither one of them know that on this day they're going to meet the love of their life or they're going to meet someone that God is going to draw them to in, in a romantic way or in a way to build this family and to build this legacy and, and to start dreams together. But what I want you to notice is they are both just being faithful with what God has put in front of them. And I think that's very important. Um, I remember as a young man uh, talking to people or, or hearing talks about, you know, what does it look like? Who are you looking for? How do you find that special someone? And one of the things, one of the pieces of advice you'd hear over and over again was, you know, pursue God and just look and see who's pursuing God with you, who's, who's heading in that direction with you. Um, and I think you certainly see that here with Boaz and Ruth. You see two people who are very faithful to what God has put in front of them. But it's not only that God has a divine plan, we're also now going to see that he has a divine protector for Ruth. And it's important to understand who Ruth represents in this picture. Ruth is a foreigner. We're told that three times in this chapter, but she's a widow. In this um, country, in this area, she is poor. She has no source of income. She's vulnerable. And so Ruth in this story represents the vulnerability of all of us. We all have found ourselves to be vulnerable. And now we're going to see in verse 8 is we're going to see this foreshadowing of God's care for the vulnerable. So picking up in verse 8, so Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. Do not go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed her head to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I have, I have been told all about you and what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and your mother and your homeland and came to live with a people that you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord of Israel, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, one of the things I want to point out is that if you look in verse 12, you may initially think that what Boaz is saying, he says, may the Lord repay you for what you have done, right? Now, for most of us, that sets off a little bit of like bells. We're like, oh, that sounds like works. That sounds like God is like indebted to Ruth. But notice what Boaz goes on to say. 
he says, um, may you be richly awarded by the Lord under whose wings you have come to take refuge, right? And so what we see is that Ruth is not doing this in order to gain some type of of reward from God. Um, She is simply seeking out a place to take refuge. She is looking for a place in which um, she can find herself cared for, in which she can trust. And so if we look at the New Testament, um, we see this language picked up on in the New Testament. So um, a good example is uh, Luke 13, 34. Uh, We find this verse, it says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you have killed the prophets and stoned those who I sent to you. I often have longed to gather your children together as a hen would gather her chicks under her wing, and you were not willing. You see, that's God's heart, right? God longs for us to take refuge in him. God longs for us to, to be drawn to him, to come to him. And even in Matthew 11, verse 28, God says, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And so we have displayed in all of scripture the heart of God. And what is the heart of God? He longs for his people to come to him and seek refuge and seek rest. He knows what life is like for us. Um, we do not have a savior who, is, who stands apart from us and does not understand what our suffering looks like, right? In, in the New Testament, we're told that Jesus took upon himself flesh and he pushed away from all that heaven had to offer him, right, for a time, that he set that aside, that he might become a man, that he might understand what it was like to be us, that he might relate to us, that he might come after us to pursue us. And so we're going to see this this redemptive nature. So picking up in verse 13, we see Ruth's response now to Boaz. She says, May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have a standing of one of your servants. So Ruth is saying, I'm not even one of your servants. I'm well below them. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, come have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. She sat down with the harvesters. She offered, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and even had some left over. As she got up to go glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and do not reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and do not rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. So one of the things we see is that Boaz now begins to sort of shift. Not only is he allowing Ruth to be there in the field, but now he's actually beginning to use his strength and his resources on her behalf. And that is certainly um, what we see in God's character. Here we begin to see Boaz as this sort of foreshadowing of Christ himself. Ruth is vulnerable. Boaz is going to become the protector. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, one of the things we would see is that God would call Israel into uh, sort of this heavenly court at times, and he would put in front of Israel the charge he would oftentimes put in front of Israel of 
where they were reflecting, either reflecting or not reflecting his character, do you know what God would say to them? He would say, you have not cared for the widow and the orphan. Over and over again. Um, over and over again, this is his call. And so, for instance, uh, Isaiah says it like this, learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. You know, oftentimes we, we in church settings, and for years I was in a youth group setting, and doing student ministries is wonderful, and it's part of the reason why it's so incredibly encouraging for me to come here, because I get to see students that I invested in that are now amazing young men and women um, that are pursuing a godly life, and it's so encouraging. But I can remember oftentimes you would find yourself calling them to be, you know, Christ-like. And it's something very easily easy to call somebody to be, just to say, we should be like Christ. We should look at Christ and follow his example and be like Christ. Um, and yet, what does it mean to be like Christ? It means to care for the fatherless. It means to care for the widow, to care for the orphan. It means to take all the resources we have and to give them away. That is not an easy thing to call a young person to. And so now as I'm getting older, I'm incredibly um, amazed at students who have done that because it really is a very hard thing to do because what do we tend to do with our resources? We tend to hold on to them, not in like a, oh, I want to be, you know, rich. I want to have all this money way. But we oftentimes are worried about the future. We're worried about what's next. We're worried about the next 10 years. And that's not a bad thing. But what I'm saying is that over and over again in Scripture, what does it look like to have godly character or reflect the God that we uh, serve? It looks like putting ourselves out there. It's getting messy. I remember one time Amy and I uh, helped someone that, you know, it was kind of that story of where it was like, I need one night in a hotel. And so we paid for one night in the hotel and after like three nights, we got a phone call from the hotel and they said, um, yeah, this guy keeps coming in and saying, y'all have, you know, said it's okay to use this card. Is that really okay, right? And so we've all done things like that where we've put ourselves out there to try to help and we've, we feel like we've been taking advantage of. I think we can all agree that that has happened to us before. But you know what? It, it never says in scripture, okay, well, once you've done it and it didn't work out, then stop doing it. Does it? I haven't read that verse. I haven't found that one yet. And so I think one of the things it means is that we have to keep trying to be faithful of what God puts in front of us, whether it's big or whether it's small, just being faithful to what God has put in front of us. So the last thing I want you to see is I want you to see that now we're going to begin to see Boaz become not only a divine protector, but a divine provision. So I'm going to pick up in verse, let me pick up in verse 17. Then did she thresh the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. Does anybody know what an ephah is? How much that would be? Okay, so I looked this up, right? It's always fun to look up some of these things that you don't know from Scripture. But it's about two to three weeks worth of food that she has gathered in this one day. It's pretty incredible, right? I mean, she has 
far exceeded probably her own expectations. She probably would have far exceeded Naomi's expectations when she brings this back. But because of Boaz, her return for her effort and her work has been multiplied. It is far more than she could have ever imagined. So she carried it back to town to her mother-in-law. And um, as much as she had gathered, Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over. After she had eaten enough, meaning after Naomi had eaten enough, her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Right? And so how is that question being asked? That's like, that, that's not just, hey, I'm just kind of wondering, what did you glean? She's like, where did you get all this? Where have you been? Like, you, you hit the jackpot. Where did you go? Again, remember, no one in our story other than us know who Boaz is. So this is the big reveal of where she's been. And so it says, where did you glean? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I work with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and to the dead. She's going to go on and tell Naomi who Boaz is, that he's actually one of their kin. Um, But I want to pause for just a second because this idea of he has not stopped showing his kindness is an important idea. Um, It's the Hebrew word hesed. And the Hebrew word hesed is very hard to translate for English speakers. And so what you're going to find is it's mentioned 250 times in the Old Testament, this idea of loving kindness, kindness. Um, And it gets translated all different ways. There's times, let me see some of the words. There's times where it's translated as mercy. It's translated as kindness, goodness, faithfulness, loyalty. It's so difficult that some translators will actually use two words to try to communicate it. They'll say loyal love, loving kindness, steadfast love. So the point is this. It is a Hebrew word that means far more than just one or two of our English words can express. What Naomi is saying to Ruth is that this man is showing you a kind of love and a kind of care that is not normal. It's not just sort of this normal sense of of charity, right? That he is going above and beyond. And so we have this idea of hesed. And so um, we find out, uh, picking up in verse 21, then Ruth the Moabite, uh, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish the harvest, harvesting my grain. Um, you have two different harvests that are harpen, happening here. You had the barley harvest and the, heat, the wheat harvest. This is about a four-month stretch of time that Boaz is inviting uh, Ruth into spending under his care and under his protection. So he's not just saying, hey, come, come and take what you want for a week. Come and take what you want for a few days here, let, let me get you kind of up and on your feet, and then maybe you and Naomi can figure things out. Um, Boaz is saying, attach yourself to me. Connect yourself to me. I will care for you. Uh, and so it's this offer of long-term care. Uh, then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with the workers until they finish harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, 
it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women to work with them because someone else may harm you in the field. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley harvest was finished. Uh, and she lived with her mother-in-law. And so starting in chapter three, we're gonna get into this idea of the kinsman redeemer. And what we're gonna find out is that there's not only a provision in Levitical law for, uh, for there to be a place for the poor to be able to gather provision, but we're also gonna find out that God has provided for um, the widow in a very special way of where one of her own family uh, can actually uh, sort of, propagate uh, the lineage of them. And so we're going to find out that in, uh, in chapter three. So thank you guys so much. Uh, really grateful to be here. Uh, grateful to get to spend time with you guys. Grateful to share in these stories as God lays really the groundwork and foreshadows the coming of our Redeemer. You know, I tried to look back at the etymology of even the word Redeemer. And as far as you can tell from scholars, the word redeemer really grows out of this idea of the story of Ruth and the idea of a kinsman redeemer. And so we hear over and over again in the New Testament that Jesus is called our redeemer. And that word is actually pointing back to this story to say that God is going to send someone that will provide for us. Let's pray. Father, we are... We come this morning because we need to be encouraged. We need to be able to look at your word. Uh, We need to be able to find ourselves in your word. But Father, even more importantly, we need to be able to to see you. Uh, Father, we need to be reminded of your great love for us. Father, we need to be reminded that even in the darkest moments, even in the bitter moments of life, uh, you are there. You are at work, even when we cannot see you. And Father, you are at work in such an amazing way that we couldn't even, we couldn't write the story in the way that you wind up writing the story for us. And so, Father, thank you for those things, the small decisions that we've made in our life that felt so minuscule and so small. And yet, Father, because of your uh, divine plan, you have used them in such an amazing way to care for us and to love us. Um, Father, each one of us could tell those stories. Uh, Thank you again uh, for your loving kindness towards us, for your hesed. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.